0: with me please to Daniel chapter 2 Daniel chapter 2 I had chosen to um, preach through uh, since the kids would be staying in the auditorium with us I had chosen to be preaching through um, narrative texts for the most part that way we could engage the kids a little bit better Um, but as it happens when the kids start attending the service, uh, I will be away. <laughs> Good planning, R.J. Um, I would I would really appreciate your prayers on my behalf as I as I will be going to Jamaica on Saturday, Lord willing. I'll be participating in a conference, uh, the Caribbean Baptist Pastors Conference, and I'll be talking about the supremacy of Christ and culture on the Monday. On the Tuesday, I'll be talking about the supremacy of Christ in the church, and then on the Wednesday, I'll be talking about the supremacy of Christ uh, in personal life. So I'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, For that time, on the Sunday, I will get the opportunity to go back to the very first church I pastored, and perhaps apologize for, (laughs) for me, but I'm looking forward to being able to go back to where it all started to where Zach and Johan um, were dedicated as babies. Um, looking forward to that. And I'd appreciate your prayers. All right, Daniel chapter 2. One of the things that, that stuck out to me while I was pastoring in Jamaica was that throughout that time, I was registered as an Alien. And if you're all thinking, that's why he's so weird, (laughs) yes. (laughs) I was a registered alien, and I even had a card to prove it. But I hope you understand that all of us are aliens. We are the people of God of whom Jesus says, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world and it is very important, if we are to live for Christ faithfully today, that we wrap our minds around our identity as exiles belonging to God, as sojourners, as resident aliens. And I have to admit, being an exile is very uncomfortable because you live on the margins. And that makes you very vulnerable. You don't have much resources, you have minimal influence, you're pretty much powerless. And that puts you in some desperate situations at times. Remember our second year here in Canada as a family, I ended up in Sunnybrook's critical care unit. My doctors didn't know what to do with me, didn't know how to get me off the respirator. And that was tough on me and my family, not just because we didn't know what would happen to me, but because our stay in Canada depended on my being able to work. And so our future looked bleak. I start there because Daniel's situation in this passage was even more bleak. Daniel had finished his training at Babylon U. He was working in the court as a wise man. And suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar orders him and his friends put to death. But therein lies the beauty of being an exile belonging to God. Bleak as Daniel's circumstances were, God was at work. In fact, it The situation that Daniel was in leads to him giving praise to God. And if you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 to 23, you find the theological center of this passage. Let's read it. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons he deposes kings and raises up others he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning he reveals deep and hidden things he knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him i thank and praise you god of my ancestors you have given me wisdom and power you have made known to me what we asked of you you have made known to us the deta- the dream of the king so it all began with Nebuchadnezzar having a disturbing dream that kept him awake all night. That's interesting, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man of his time, and yet, and yet, he is frightened by a dream. See, when you're determined to run life, your life on your own terms, you will be just as fragile as Nebuchadnezzar. The more you t- try to take control of your life, the more frustrated you get because your helplessness becomes even more obvious. Trusting in yourself leads to major insecurity. Now, during those days, people believed that dreams had real-world implications. They weren't just your subconscious going crazy. They weren't just that spicy food giving you heartburn. And so Nebuchadnezzar had to understand what his dream meant. And as a result, he convened all of the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. These people were the accredited dream interpreters, the wise men of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar threw them a curveball. In verse 5 and 6, he tells them, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So, tell me the dream and interpret it for me. I guess we're not the only people skeptical of these wise men. Nebuchadnezzar himself did not trust them. But if you were in the shoes of the wise men, you you really would have to ask Nebuchadnezzar, please tell us your dream. And so, again, Nebuchadnezzar responds, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Sad, isn't it? For all of his power and might, Nebuchadnezzar did not even know whom he could trust. And for their part, the wise men were incredibly frustrated. I mean, that's super unreasonable, king. And that's what they tell him. Verse 10 and 11. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked the thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer, Who do you think you are, king? Oh, king. <laughs> what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. What a, what a problem, right? The wise men believe. Well, the gods know, but we don't have their number. And therein lies the trouble with any belief system outside of Christianity. All of them are limited. They cannot bear the weight of our trust. And however promising or uplifting they might seem, eventually they let us down, just like any sports team. As Dale Ralph Davis would point out, life is a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. The biblical writer is telling exiled Israel that there is no need to be awed by paganism despite its trappings and splendor, for it is nothing but empty and dark. Now, the wise men's response infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. And he was so mad, he ordered all the wise men, not just killed, but hacked to pieces. And that included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we are told in verse 14, when Arioch was about to execute them, Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. Verse 15, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Now, we we don't know how Daniel managed that. Bottom line is, he was able to convince Nebuchadnezzar to give him more time. And at the very least, we recognize that God was providentially taking care of Daniel. And so Daniel and his friends get together, verse 17. And in verse 18, they plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. See, the Babylonian gods were unreachable. The great thing about the God of the Bible is that he condescends to dwell with his people and he hears their prayer. We are told in verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel In a vision. And that's why he bursts out in praise. He acknowledges in verse 20 that God is both wise and powerful. He knows the future because he has planned it out. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He knows the future because he has planned it out. And friends, that's why we can be confident even if we are exiles in this world. We belong to God. He's planned it all out. He's not doing the whole choose your own adventure novel thing. Any of you read those? Right? Where you're flying by the seat of your pants and then as things turn out, oops, I died. Back to the drawing board. No, that's not God. See, God has mapped out everything from beginning to end so that nothing at all surprises him. But in some wonderful, mysterious way, human actions are significant. And this might come up in the Q&R, and A. and i will tell you now, I do not know how divine sovereignty and human responsibility cohere. All I know is that the Bible says Both are true. But it is beyond our ability to fathom how they come together. What we know is that God is in control, sovereignly installing and deposing rulers, according to verse 21. He is in control, guiding even political processes and their outcomes, then and now. And so Arkent Hughes would point out Christians need to remember the power of God over the rulers of the world at times of national elections. Many Christians seem to become so frustrated if a leader is elected who leads contrary to Christian principles. Though that can be a disappointment, we must remember that the Lord tells us in Romans 13:1, "There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God." Let us stop wringing our hands over national elections and get on our knees praying. For those in leadership, as we are instructed to do in First Timothy two, one and two. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. God is powerful, and the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Look, as bad as things might be, God is still in control. We need not be afraid. And we can be and must be confident that he is working out his purposes even if we do not understand what he's doing. And even better, God doesn't keep his wisdom to himself. Look at verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And that's what that made Daniel the kind of man he was. See, one of the things I want to warn you against is focusing on Daniel and seeking to emulate him. As we said last week, look, God is the hero of this story. If you're going to be trying to be a Daniel, you're going to be frustrated. Because you're supposed to be you. God made you you. The reason Daniel was wise was that God gave him wisdom and power. Look at verse 23. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You can't be a Daniel on your own. It is only God that gives us the wisdom and the power. And wisdom is a gift we receive as we live in obedient relationship with God. And the bountiful goodness of God towards Daniel caused him to rely on God even more. And that's why, in his interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel humbly points Nebuchadnezzar back to God. But before we go on, I want you to notice look at um, verse 24. Daniel went to Ariah, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Now you might say, well, wasn't, why, would, why would Daniel do that? Wasn't that his chance to get rid of all these pagan people who were messing Nebuchadnezzar up? Well, I think we need to recognize that Daniel having received the grace of God, acts to save all the wise men of Babylon. And it is surprising, but I, hope, I think we need to recognize that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar's command was unjust. And so Daniel was acting righteously by seeking to protect even the pagans from wrongful death. And his response is wonderful because it demonstrates how he wasn't just concerned for himself. His love for God and his trust in God demonstrated itself in being genuinely concerned for the good of his neighbors. That is to say, his colleagues in the wise man's guild, even though they were misguided. And in doing this, Daniel is living out God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. See, our calling as the people of God It's not just to look out for ourselves. In fact, our calling is to give ourselves for the welfare of others, to seek the peace of the city to which God has sent us. And so Daniel now acts, God having saved him from danger, now acts to save others from danger. So we come to verse 25. And the way that Arioch introduces Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar serves as a foil to Daniel's humility. Notice how Arioch approaches the king. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. What do you mean, I have found a man, Arioch. Stop trying to claim credit for Daniel's presence. Interestingly, Daniel has no interest in self-promotion. The king asked Daniel, verse 26, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel says, "Uh, well, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown to Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind As you were lying in bed, asked thee, was this are these? As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Wonderful, isn't it? It's not about me. And this is our calling as followers of Christ, to point people to God by proclaiming His excellencies. We tell the truth humbly and respectfully, just like Daniel, as God opens the door. It's not about us. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And in doing so, God was giving Daniel the opportunity to point Nebuchadnezzar to God. Daniel simply had to rely on God and act out of the wisdom that God had given him. Now, you you have to recognize too, though, that saying this would get Nebuchadnezzar a little impatient, right? It's like, so if you can't tell me, why are you here? So Daniel now tells him the dream. Um, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces. And became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, that validated his credibility, but at this point, Daniel is actually in worse danger than before, and he needs to trust the Lord even more. See, interpreting the dream would cost potentially cost daniel his life if you look at verse 37 and 38 i mean sure telling dan telling nebuchadnezzar he was the powerful and glorious head of gold ruling over men and beasts would actually